Are you a little squeamish? Much like the classic Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episodes, today's show begins with a content warning. Yeah, that's right. If you're currently in the presence of small children and you wish to avoid explaining what erectile dysfunction is, you should perhaps save this episode for another time. I think I've just stuffed up the uh, content warning, haven't I? Yeah, just a bit. Do you want to do it again? Nah, horses already bolted there, I think. Which is fitting for today's episode. Welcome to episode 13 of Keeping Up With The Consumer Law. As always, I'm Joel Lisk and joined by the... I'm trying to think of the right adjective, but I can't get there. Joined by Joel Greger. G'day, how you going? I am adjectiveless Joel Greger. We'll go with that. Um, so, we are serious. This episode does come with a content warming. If you're under the age of 18 or, you know, you're a little bit delicate, you might not be able to handle this episode, but we'll try and make it a, a bit of a laugh. What do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, it's ironic because I remember this because the radio adverts would always be playing when I was a kid and uh, would would catch my attention. So, it's ironic that we're doing the uh, content warning now. That's but just because good. we're cautious. Yeah. 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 Um, well, you are. You are. I am. Of course, as always, if you want to keep up with the podcast, you can follow us on any of our social medias, which includes LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you want to follow a absolutely unengaging and unused social media, you can follow us on threads. Um, a massive thanks, as always, goes to the Law Foundation of South Australia for their financial support of this podcast. And with that, I think we'll jump straight into the content. So, Joel, what have you got? Want longer lasting sex? No, I'm not propositioning you, Lisk. That was the advertising campaign of a series of businesses called Advanced Medical Institute, or AMI. Uh, that's what we're talking about today, AMI. So... Technically, for those nerds following along at home who want the case reference to do the uh, to do the additional reading before class, or the nerds in the room with us now, well, I haven't read this case, so I'm entirely relying on you. We're talking about the case of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission and ACN one one seven three seven two nine one five Proprietary Limited in liquidation, formerly known as the Advanced Medical Institute PTYLTD. Yep. And That's about, a mouthful. And about six other respondents as well. So, look, there was a fair bit going on here. I'm really going to skim over this. Uh, it, it was quite a big case in a series of litigation. There was a, a lot of cases uh, just for this one. This same bloke has been in front of the court a number of times uh, with the ACCC, uh, spanning over nearly my whole lifetime. Uh, but... Essentially, what it comes down to is there was um, a series of businesses. They were trading as Advanced Medical Institute. Uh, they ran what could loosely be described as a medical clinic. Uh, it was very different to a actual medical clinic, though, which we'll get into in a moment. Uh, and they specialised in the treatment of premature ejaculation and erectile dysfunction, so men's health areas. You may remember them, though, from uh, that, that line before, one longer lasting sex. They exclusively marketed uh, or targeted, I should say, their audience through um, quite um, uh, brazen advertising on billboards. It'd be those big yellow billboards with big red font from memory uh, that would be screaming out at you about one longer lasting sex and nasal spray treatment. It would be on TV late at night on the adverts. Uh, it would come over the radio any time of the day. It would be in the newspaper. Can you remember these ads, Lisk? Of course. They're on the billboards at every major intersection in the city for a while, weren't they? 
yeah, I mean, I'm from the country, so I, I um, you know, just anything in the city was overwhelming. But yeah, they were. They were, the billboards were everywhere. We're talking throughout the noughties uh, into the early 2010s from from memory there. And so with those ads, they would always have a call uh, to action and it would be something along the lines of call the doctors at AMI to see how you could improve your sex life. If you called, that's where your problems began. Wait, so you didn't immediately get the solution by calling a doctor? Uh, Yeah, look, the treatment wasn't the um, traditional format. So, look, this is heavily paraphrased to try to chunk it down because I have a habit of going too long in these segments. Oh, you think? (laughs) Yeah. That 15-minute episode that went for 38 minutes was a good example. So, anyway, this wasn't like normal clinics. Most consultations were done over the phone, uh, despite the fact that... Um, look, I'm probably just going to say PE and ED because it's shorter. Could you say men's performance? Uh, I mean, it's, it's a lack of performance, really, so it's kind of an oxymoron. And, um, <laughs> anyway, so... Lisk is going to do his best to get for the episode about giggling. We'll see how we go. Too late. Too late. So, um... Where was I going with this? You've you've got me off track already. What you're saying is non-traditional medical services that are really actually marketing. Yeah, pretty much. It's it's a marketing, it's a business operation. What it it was getting at was it's over the phone. Now, this is despite the fact that for these conditions, the the primary way of treating it is in person or diagnosing it as an in-person consult. Um, The whole way it was done was to lead the, the, the patient or the customer into believing that it was a regular medical clinic, but it was really far from that. So when they would call up, they'd first uh, usually speak to a clinical coordinator who really was just a salesperson on commission, uh, but very much wasn't making the person aware that they're on, on commission because that would have been a pretty clear indicator this wasn't a usual clinic. They would at that point discuss the need for medication. Now... Um, that might seem a bit bizarre. You don't usually walk into a doctor's office and be told by the um, person at the front desk about what medication you're going to need and why, but that's what was taking place here. They discussed the need for medication. Again, this was a salesperson doing it, not a medical professional. Um, and it's pretty bad. You can see the transcripts in the, in the um, case, but they were pressured pretty heavily into it and they were told if you don't agree to the treatment well you're going to suffer adverse medical consequences uh they would say that would include things like shrinking of the penis or psychological impotence uh they were told that the treatment would reduce the chance of a heart attack and stroke um they would also say things like your patient uh sorry your partner might suffer depression and um leave you if they don't agree to treatment so what we're really doing here is we've got a whole bunch of different circumstances and the marketing is essentially targeting men who are probably a little bit vulnerable and a little bit, you know, probably feeling quite attacked and we're just loading on every possible worst case scenario to make them feel more vulnerable and more susceptible to marketing in this area. Yeah, absolutely. Beating them down for that that, that last little bit before they send them through to the doctor's office, which again was just on the phone. So they were transferred through the doctor for the consultation, uh, which really was just making sure there was a reason not to prescribe uh, the drugs they were about to. There was no diagnosis of the underlying cause, which is a massive issue because premature ejaculation and erectile dysfunction are linked with cardiovascular disease and diabetes and a range of other pretty bad conditions. Um, So these patients were thinking they were being diagnosed. They they weren't. They were just getting prescribed drugs. Um, The drugs that were being prescribed, the doctors were restricted into prescribing AMI's unique brand of medicine, which was really just an 
off-label use of a drug for treating Parkinson's disease uh, through their um, AMI uh, proprietary treatment style of nasal spray or a uh, tongue strip, which had no proven efficacy whatsoever. Um, so it definitely wasn't the first-line treatment option. Um, it was pretty average and, and no, no evidence that it worked. Then at that point, now that they've had their consultation and been prescribed their medication, they'd be transferred back to a clinic coordinator uh, who discussed or really pressured them into signing up for a payment plan. Again, how many times do you go into a doctor's office and sign a payment plan for 12 to 18 months? Not, not typical not, of me. No, I don't think I've ever done that. No, no, I can't, I can't ever recall that. Um, and they would sometimes, you know, they'd be up to four and a half thousand dollars for these payment plans over the next year and a half or so. So, so quite a cheap service, really. It's probably not covered by your private health. Um, I mean, real cheap compared to like the cost of just like a packet of like um, blue pills, Viagra. Yeah, exactly. So four and a half grand or so uh, for a Parkinson's drug, which doesn't work in the way they're doing it. Anyway, uh, look, there are so, so many issues with this. It was a gross, really gross breach of the trust relationship between doctor and patient. Uh, as you were saying, Liz, they, they really preyed on the vulnerability of these patients for a condition they knew they'd be embarrassed with. And that was that was what the court really got to, was identifying, look, you, it's pretty crappy behavior here you've you've designed your whole business to target people that are vulnerable that are feel embarrassed about it uh also they're, they're probably not at a strong risk of going and putting in big complaints against you because they don't really want to speak about it um they put the health of the patient at risk by not actually diagnosing and addressing the medical uh, cause of symptoms and the um prescribing uh in a loose sense and and well no, they were prescribing, but prescribing and charging extraordinarily excessive amounts uh, for a treatment with no proven efficacy. So, yeah, pretty pretty gross behaviour. Yeah, so we have some patients who are feeling very vulnerable. This is all. This has just happened on the phone. They haven't actually seen a human being at any point, right? Yeah. Look, uh, sometimes there were, I think, in person or other options and stuff, but the, primarily this was all done over the phone. So usually they'd just be doing this in a phone call. Okay, so they've gotten sucked in. They've ended up signing up to this massive payment plan. And, well, what if it didn't work? Could you get your cash back? Well, that's what we're focusing on here, yeah? Um, These oppressive refund terms. Now, we've got what we call the AMI contracts and the NRM contracts. Um, Why the division, like... A brief explanation is essentially when the ACCC brought the action. My understanding is that uh, Dr. Vaisman, the CEO, director, shareholder, um, thought I know how to get around this and voluntarily liquidated the company, uh, transferred to a new company. Uh, Smart. No, the ACCC just joined the new company to the action. I think that's called phoenixing normally, isn't it? Uh, Whatever it's called, it did not work. Um, That's why you've got seven respondents to this. It's four different corporations, Dr. Baseman and two of the treating doctors. Um, So anyway, we talk about the AMI service contract was the one prior to that change happening of the businesses. And then the NRM contract was the contracts going forward from there. Um, Now, the AMI contract, it was terrible. Um, it's not the particular focus, though. So just to highlight a couple really bad points of it, though, um, the salesperson reassured potential customers that if the treatment doesn't work, you'll get a refund. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, great. Apart from they didn't say you have to have attempted all the treatment options options first. Um, and as you work down the line, they got worse and worse until it got to a self-administered injection into the base of the penis. Um, 
I don't know if anyone's following at home, but I've just read those words on the note sheet and kind of you know, cringed a little bit internally. Yeah, I just saw it list gum. Like shiver? Yeah. So, yeah. No thanks. Next, let's keep moving. Uh, this term is usually only brought to the attention of the patient when sent with the first delivery of the medication, so after signing up. So uh, whilst um, the, the previous line had um, Lisk as a, as a male um, reclining, um, that line gets me as a lawyer going, oh, my God, what are you doing? So pretty big issue as far as contract law goes, the fact that you um, don't actually make this term available until after the contract's entered into. But anyway. So practically, though, sorry, just to be very, very clear, that means your contract terms are only being like stuffed in the package with the first lot of drugs, right? Yep. They were at the end of the booklet that was sent with the first packet of pills. Okay. So you've like... As, Sorry, uh, not pills, not pills, but uh, whatever the drug was. So you're flicking through the book and it's like, oh, this is the instructions to use it. And of course, as a as a stereotypical male, I don't need instructions to do anything. So the whole book can just go in the recycling bin and I'll come back to that later. But I forgot to read the terms and conditions. Yeah. and Not um, that I've been using these drugs. When you say you, you mean hypothetically, is that... We're, talk- we're talking hypothetically generally here. Let's just keep moving on before. <laughs> and, and the other point was, um, uh, it, it was good. They did actually have a 48-hour calling-off period. They just didn't tell their patients that that existed. Okay, so, you know, it's, they're trying to be nice. It's a bit of a balance there. Uh, I think that's, um, that's a very generous um, way of thinking about it. So, anyway, that was the AMI one. We're not actually going to focus on that one too much, though, because the, what we're looking at here in particular for this episode purpose is the NRM refund term. So, although this was described as a considerable improvement on the, on the previous AMI version, it was also really problematic. It required a patient to pay, when, once they cancelled, a 15% administration fee. Now, remember, we're talking about payment plans up to about four and a half grand here. So these were pretty excessive. They had to pay pro rata fee for the expired portion, uh, pro rata fee for the 30 day notice period. Uh, that means that once they've given their notice that they're terminating, they still have to pay for another 30 days and the cost of medication that's already been supplied or prepared for the patient. Um, now, if that sounds very vague, it's because it was, and that was one of the issues. Um, this term operated for any reason for termination that included whether the patient changed their mind straight after hopping off the phone, uh, whether there was a severe adverse side effect that occurred, or whether the medication has proved ineffective. Now, given it was an off-label use of a Parkinson's drug with no proven efficacy, I'd say a pretty good chance of that last one. You said that fast, <laughs> just like it's a term of conditions at the end of an ad. It's yeah. like, it's an off-label Parkinson's drug. It may not be effective. Yeah, I mean, I would... I I would um, put myself out there for doing that, but I've got a feeling that all of my other work criticising all these companies probably has excluded me. Anyway, um, it effectively punished patients for terminating where the treatment was effective, uh, was ineffective or it caused injury, um, and they still had to pay for any treatments administered during that 30-day period, even if they're saying, like, this is making me horribly ill, you still got to pay for 30 days. <laughs> so... Not great. So all up, not very consumer friendly, not very accessible. And I can see here, not very transparent because even I don't understand what's really going on here. Yeah. It, the transparency was a massive issue here. You don't understand it. The patients definitely didn't. Um, the basis on what those administration fees were worked out wasn't disclosed. Like that pro rata amount wasn't like, that was whatever they came up with. The recording of the term you said I was speaking quickly. The recording of the term was incomprehensible is, is what they said of the judgment. And it was also generally provided after the contract was entered into. We've got a bit of a theme going there. Okay. So what are we actually looking at here? I've got this, I've got the vibe, you know, it's Marbo. Um, like we've got a bit of unconscionable conduct here because we're, we're preying on people who are in the a vulnerable state. But 
we're talking a lot about terms. So I've got a feeling we're talking about technical unfair contracts, maybe. Yeah. Yep. So both came up here. And this is actually a really good case about unconscionable conduct. And that's where a lot of the, um, I mean, they got hit hard by the court. And that's associated with the unconscionable conduct. We're actually going to skim right over that, though. We're using this to talk about the unfair contract term. Um, provision that was applied. So uh, there was the unconscionable conduct that took place and then there was also this issue of a unfair contract term being used. But we're really only looking at this one for unfair contracts, right? Yeah, absolutely. And this only applied to the NRM contract just based on when uh, those contracts were taking place and when the act came into commencement. So we're just talking about some technical legal crap there. Pretty much, yeah. So that's why I was saying we're, we're not focusing on the penis injection um, <laughs> contract. We're just focusing on the boring contract with the admin fees that we don't understand. Um, uh, I've lost the list multiple times at this point already. But um, anyway, this is well, it's good. It's just me having to talk through this one. We're, we're still here. I'm, I'm here. I'm present. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, what this is is actually pretty cool law. It's brought in with the um, Australian Consumer Law uh, when when that came about at the start of. Um, well, I mean, this actually came into place partway through 2010. This did, but it provides that a term of a consumer contract or a small business contract will be void if it's determined to be unfair and contained in a standard form contract. Now, there's a lot of detail here. This is not a simple area, right? God, no. And so, we're going to skim over it. We're not breaking down. I was like, can we even just skip it? But in reality, um, this area is very, very loaded. And I think even as lawyers, a lot of the time, I've, I've had a lawyer ask me once, a very, very senior lawyer going, unfair contract terms. That's not actually real, right? That's just something we do. Which the answer to that is, is no, it is real, but it's it's very technical and detailed and is, has lots of caveats in there. Yeah, it, it is real and it will come in and cut the hell up of your contract that you drafted. Um, look, it, we're just looking at consumer contract here. Uh, it was actually the only option then anyway. It changed in 2016 to bring in the um, small business option as well. Standard form, that's a term we use a fair bit. What it really means is a contract where it's a take it or leave it, no negotiation, it's prepared by one business. There's a bunch of factors that you consider. Um, what it is though, there's a rebuttable presumption if the alleged contract uh, is said to have been standard form unless the other party proves otherwise. Now, rebuttal presumption, it's a term we use in law. What it means is I don't have to prove it. You have to prove me wrong. So essentially, if you're a a business using a standard form contract or a contract that you use for everything, there is a presumption there that that contract is a standard form contract and I as the business have to prove that it's not. I have to prove that it's customised for this particular circumstance. Now, yeah, there presuming there's alleged to have been. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the time, um, it's quite a difficult one to overcome because there have been some ways of undermining this process that have been recently, I think, f- fixed a little bit in the consumer law, but it's 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 a serious threshold to get over. But a lot of the time, just think of like your standard terms on, you sign up to on... I don't know, for any online service, that is a standard form contract because you can't negotiate it and it's going to be very, very hard to undermine that argument. I think we can skim right over the factors that a court looks at there just to keep this thing moving. Uh, short to say, AMI, they failed to rebut that presumption. Yet they had the bargaining power, they had all the bargaining power, they prepared the contract prior to any discussion, there was no negotiation, they didn't consider the individual characteristics. The only negotiation was around the total cost and really that was just how much could they get them on the hook for. So that's the standard form 
element satisfied, we've then got this other element to satisfy, and that's that the, it's unfair. Now, we're talking about the term being unfair, so the individual term itself, not the contract as a whole. It's a really important clarification, that, and we spoke about it in our Ask the Expert episode when we were rapid firing, I think, yeah. from memory. And so here, the term, it, it met the definition of unfair, it satisfies that if it meets these three tests. And what it's looking at is, is, is there a significant imbalance in the party's contractual rights or obligations? Is it reasonably necessary, this term, to protect the legitimate interest of the of the party who's you know using it? And is it going to cause detriment, being financial or otherwise, to the party uh, that it's being applied to? Um, that point about reasonably necessary, that's another rebuttable presumption. So the defendant has to has to show the court that no, that's not the case. Uh, AMI failed to do that, um, which should be pretty clear why. They also uh, the other two elements were established that it was um, a significant imbalance and it would cause detriment uh, for the the reasons above. We don't really need to go into it again. You also need to consider that transparency of the term, which we spoke about before, and the contract as a whole. Uh, it was not transparent. <laughs> To, to, to say the least. So the idea here, of course, is that if a, if a term is manifestly unfair, but it reads really, really easily, and you can actually understand it as a customer or anyone on the street, you can actually take away some of that unfairness, right? Yeah. Well, that's why it's saying you look at the transparency, you look at the contract as a whole, is it buried away deep in a whole bunch of confusing stuff? Is it made quite abundantly clear? They're all factors to consider. It's, it's more of an art than a science, I think. Yeah, I'm just trying to think, like, if your Netflix terms and conditions said, we own your first child, but they put it in big red font at the top of the agreement, it's slightly more transparent than if it was buried on page 93. Well, I mean, there's that game platform uh, or, or um, gaming company that uh, had the clause about we own your souls that no one read a while ago. But anyway, we're, we're, we're digressing. Let's I keep can, moving. I can keep going with weird contract terms. I think Elon Musk said something about which laws apply on Mars in the Starlink terms and conditions for internet. So that was entirely uh, weird, yeah, yeah. but that was buried in there as well. Elon Musk, Elon Musk has said a lot of things, hasn't he? <laughs> anyway, um, so in ACCC and AMI, uh, that NRM refund term, that was found to be unfair, which meant it is void. At, at that point, that's how the law stood. And, and look, we're just going to skim over and not go any deeper on that. There's some changes, but we're just going to, at that time, it was void. So what that means, though, is that the remainder of the contract it can keep operating if it works without that term. Now, what was interesting here is if the court just went and uh, found that the term was void, that would actually have removed the entire refund term from the contract and the patients wouldn't have had a, a specific um, and um, set out right for them to terminate. So what the court actually did was was read into it further and made uh, the individual elements unfair elements so that preserved the patient's right to terminate. So it actually saw the court interfere to a certain extent in the contract to make it fairer. Yeah, yeah. The court actually went a step further than what the ACCC were requesting from from memory because they went, well, look, if we do this, we're going to remove the patient's explicit right to term to to get a refund because that's what it was about. It was about the refund. Sorry. Um, uh, so if we if we rem- if it's all found void, it will be removed. So we're going to read into it as each being individual elements, and each of those elements are going to be void, but they still have a refund term overall remaining. So that's like quite cool. Okay, so we've had contract terms be void now because they are unfair, and 
quite a good demonstration of the unfair contract term regime. So kind of what are our, are our key takeaways then from this particular incident besides the fact that I still giggle every time we talk about injections? Uh, also, maybe just don't trust someone appearing on a billboard. I, I think, well, we probably should never trust what you see on a billboard, especially when it refers to intimate matters anyway. Uh, no, I was actually aiming that one at Lisk because Lisk was the poster child for um, a government campaign a while ago uh, on bus stops and uh, and billboards. It all adds up to more jobs in space. <laughs> there we go. The plug still lives on. So, what are the actual takeaways? Look, standard form contracts are used all the time, as, as Lisk said. But the important thing to remember, you can't just put whatever you want into it as the stronger party there are these really um quite efficient protections for consumers uh and it's really important i think that businesses uh understand that when they're considering what they include in their t's and c's and also that consumers are aware of this for when they're faced with harsh uh contract conditions um uh, also probably my final takeaway is just maybe don't trust a man that goes by the nickname dr droop That'll do it. And I think this is an interesting one as well from a a lawyer perspective that it actually does show there are reasons why you do speak to lawyers when drafting your consumer contracts because they are aware of unfair contract laws on the most part and they won't stick oppressive refund terms in and they won't do other things like that because they know there's a reason why you don't and this is probably it. And to be honest, they probably could have told you that this wasn't a good medical decision too. Yeah, right at the beginning. Of, I, I can imagine, imagine the brief coming through from the instructions from the client and you just look at it going, I'm sorry, what? Are you sure you want to do this? Uh, there's a few other impediments along the way, but hey, sometimes yeah. your client's convictions really overcome everything. Yeah, so see your, see your lawyer before you draft a contract. Maybe also see a lawyer before you inject your penis. Well, with that, I think it brings us to the end of what is episode 13 of Keeping Up With The Consumer Law. Uh, thank you for listening along. I apologise if you have me giggling in your ear the entire 27-ish minutes of this episode. Um, as always, none of this is legal advice. Um, if you would like to look at your options around what is legal advice and where you can get legal advice from, you can head over to our website. Um, thank you once again to the Law Foundation of South Australia for their generous financial support of this episode. If- I should probably say it's not medical advice either, but neither was it really in AMI. So. Uh, thank you for that clarification. I do appreciate it. I was thinking that the um, the Therapeutic Goods Administration at some point, but we won't go there for this one. Um, of course, if you want to be kept up with the consumer law, you can follow us on our social medias, uh, which are LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. I had to think there for a second. We are gradually culling these social medias rather than gaining them, aren't we? We got rid of one, but we won't speak of that. We've got rid of two now. Two? Threads and Twitter. No, Threads is still there. Uh. I just don't talk about it. Twitter is, is dead. Um, to me, anyway, right now. Um, and you can also head over to our website, which is consumerlaw.media. Um, I think our next podcast in a fortnight is about how do you can get rich, right? Yeah, join us to get rich and all your dreams will come true. Lisk, we have done it. We have found our pyramid scheme case. We we um, we noted in our first episode how good it would be to do a pyramid scheme case. I've got one for you. Yeah, Just I mean, wait. It's a shame that you're the respondent. It's weird, but that's what it was. The whole thing is, this was completely f-